we've, we've been walking through some aspects of, of what it means to be working in um, just different places of the world and different aspects of ministry in the world. Um, we've talked at the very beginning when we started off this, we, we went through sort of the thread, where we walked through the gospel thread, the gospel narrative, but basically how all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we begin to see this continuing pattern of God's desire to impact the nations, to bless the nations, for his name to be made, made great in the nations. And so we saw that going through all the way from the book of Genesis, all the way through to the New Testament. And then the next week we heard uh, from the book of Acts, like what happened with that early church um, Rob shared a little bit through this one, what happened with that early church. But what was unique about that approach and discussion was, what did the early church focus on? Like, as a church, as they were formed, as they were gathering, what was the main theme that they were trying to do? What were some of the aspects, what were the concerns of that early church? And where did they head to? Continually, as we watched them go, one of the main themes and thrusts as the church began to move forward all the way through the book of Acts was its heart to reach the world, its heart to reach the nations. Um, the next course after that, uh, Mark walked through this idea of missions, like how did missions begin and, and where did the idea of missions come from? So as the early church, uh, we saw the early church concluding, the, the church itself began to take on some of this role and responsibilities of seeing, well, okay, we understand this task has been given to us, the church, what do we do with it? Like, what do we do with this task of reaching the nations? And so Mark walked through uh, different, different eras of history of where that was impactful. And then we talked about this idea of, the, of the task remaining, like what's left then? If this, if this is true that God's desire is for us to be a part of reaching the nations, then, then how do we determine that? How do we measure that and what's left? Like what are we left to do as the church? Um, and then last week, some of the issues that comes when you deal with this cross-culturally in these areas, when you actually engage the world is, how do I then communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense in a community that has never, has no concept of the gospel, has no idea of it? How do you break through those barriers? And how is it easy to miscommunicate in those type of times? So as we've walked through this, we began to see how God actually reveals his plan for us to be involved in, the, in that aspect of it. And I'm hoping, or we're hoping, that through this time of this course, by the time you go through it next week, um, we'll be talking about how is God awakening us to his purposes and his message. In the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul begins to lay out basically a clear understanding for church planting and what he desires to do among places and people in the world that have never heard. And if you've read through the book of Romans, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of a, of a great missionary prayer letter. It's a, it's a letter written out to the church in Rome describing what God has done in his own life, how God is moving him and where God is moving him towards. And he writes it this way. He says this in Romans chapter 15. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there once I have enjoyed your company for a while. It was Romans 15, 19 through 24. I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. Uh, my wife and my wife, I grew up in a Christian home that was really heavily focused on this concept of missions. We, I grew up, my family were missionaries. Uh, several of my family were pastors in, in the church. And I was, I was that kid that for some reason it missed until I was in graduate school and college when the Lord finally got a hold of my life and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And it was a, a pretty transformational time for me 
Um, because I guess in so many ways I'd have been seen as what people would have thought I was was a good Christian kid, but actually I had no interest, no relationship with the Lord. Um, but I began to really focus on the Lord during those years. Um, I began working in the chemical field as an engineer. Um, and during that time, I met my wife while I was actually also going to seminary at that time. And we began to talk about what God was doing in our own lives and how God wanted to use us and for what purpose he wanted to use us. Um, it was during that time as we were studying, reading, reading the Word together, spending time in the Word, that we both became more and more fixed on this idea that it wasn't as much about God fixing our rough edges as much as it was about us aligning ourselves with God and his story us seeing how God could use us in his story that he was, he was playing out throughout the world. And, and we began to really, really shift our focus, not on about how we can be better, but how we can know God in a better way, in a deeper way. Um, and that passage began to be much more increasingly significant to me, Romans 15. Um, and during that time, we became just, just spending time in his word and just des- describing things. We began to uh, seek out where else we could begin working in. And I began working as a pastor in a church in Sarasota, Florida. And we, we both went into that ministry thinking that God was going to use us. We were praying that God would use us to challenge this brand new church. It was a church plant, this brand new church in the area of mission. So we were brought in to be family pastor, missions pastor, youth pastor, associate pastor, kind of all those things. But uh, I really focused a lot on missions. That was where my heart was. And we began to look for places that we could be challenging our church to go in. And as we were reading the Word, as we were challenging people to go, as we were talking about this idea of being ascending church and what does it mean to be ascending body, um, I have to say the Lord, it just became real to us. We were more and more convinced that, man, this is, why don't we go? And so we prayed, we talked together, um, we began to really seek out the Lord. And, and people have asked me, so, so when was it that God actually called you? And I, I really can't say that I don't, I don't want to get into the whole calling thing because I don't know if he did or didn't in that sense where maybe people think of it. It was more of just an obedience to God's word. We saw it, it was clearly laid out, and I just couldn't think of a reason why I wouldn't go. And so we both, we both talked about it as a church. We went to our church leadership. We asked them, what do they think about it? And this was the vision of the church. The church wanted to be ascending church. And so they were excited to see us go. And so we, we then were, were then sent overseas to plant churches and unreached, unengaged people groups. We didn't really know totally what that meant, and Julianne will share more about that in a bit. But in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul recognized this uniqueness about what was his calling in his ministry. Church planting where Christ was not known. That was what I think, that's what the Apostle Paul felt very strongly in. There's, John Piper has kind of described it this way. There's two types of missionaries. There's a Timothy type and a Paul type. And I'll just kind of, if you've heard that before, I'll just kind of go over that a little bit. Timothy was asked to stay in Ephesus. After, after the church in Ephesus was planted, Timothy was sent to Ephesus. Uh, and he was there to, to, to help, actually it says here in, Ephesus, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, to help correct bad doctrine that had been creeping into the church. So what the Apostle Paul had noticed was that one of the churches that had been planted was actually struggling as a church. And so they sent, Paul, or they sent Timothy in a very valid ministry to help equip a struggling church that was in this community. Titus did the same thing. Titus went in and he was asked to strengthen this church and actually appoint elders in Titus 1.5. So Timothy and Titus, they were going to places where they're already established churches. And through it, God was honored and churches were strengthened and they actually planted other churches through that ministry, a very valid and very legitimate ministry. There's another type of missionary and that's the Pauline type of ministry where Paul says in, some, in, in this passage here, he says there are actual places where he legitimately is able to say, there are no more places for me to work. There's some evaluation tool he's using, some kind of uh, guide where he's looking at, but he's taking this, he's saying, by going to these places, these are places where no one's ever been. These are, this is the places, I'm going to use this phrase now, a pioneer, mission, a pioneer missionary type of work. And he was using some kind of guide for that. So apparently, 
it was already accomplished from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, Paul's saying. From Jerusalem all the way around here, the work is accomplished. But we know this for a fact, right? We know that when you look down here in, in Naples and in Fort Myers, or, or yeah, Fort Myers you're talking about, these, this is not all reached. The people aren't all believers. But in the Apostle Paul's perspective, this is now the role of the church. This is now the task of the church to equip and engage these communities. This is what the church was for. Paul was saying, for me as a pioneer missionary, I was to go to places where he had not yet been known. Essentially, he was saying this, if someone wanted to know about Jesus, there was nobody there that could understand a language or culture that could communicate that. Somebody has to do an extraordinary effort of moving there, learning the language, learning the culture, living among the people, and planting a church in those areas. And that's what Paul said he was about. So those who have never been taught cannot come to saving faith apart from someone going and preaching to them. And Paul's ambition was to, was to be a part of saying a, seeing a true foundation established so that a, a church can grow into maturity. And the second aspect that Paul always believed strongly in was this idea that missions isn't just this picture. And I, again, when we're using the word missions, I mean, we, we can think of all kinds of different things. Um, oftentimes, because I'm a missionary, people will say, oh, you're a missionary. You sit the missionary table, and you guys will all understand each other. And actually, you sit there, and you find out there's a lot of different visions and missions, and that's great. But Paul had a very specific niche of what he was about, and that was planting churches, and in that was proclamation of the gospel. It was great to go and help these communities. It was great to go and benefit communities. But without the proclamation of Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be worth anything. You can go off and do so many great things in so many communities, but if we're not proclaiming Jesus Christ, then it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make a difference. So much so that in Romans 10, he says this, 10, 13 through 15, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul could have stopped in Rome and had a pretty successful ministry there. He probably could have likely stayed there and seen some real fruit take place. But in Paul's plans, Rome was just a stopover place, just a place he was going to be in for a short while and then move on. God had something different for the Apostle Paul. A couple weeks ago, you guys heard Todd was talking about this idea of the great imbalance. And this is where it comes from. It's not that one is better than the other. It's not that the Timothy ministry is better than the Paul ministry. But what, what has come out recently and more and more people are talking about is this imbalance. It's imbalanced between the fact that of all the missionary efforts that go on in the world, like 97% go towards the Timothy ministry and 3% go towards the Paul ministry. And yet, as we've talked over and over again, over 3,200 unreached people groups in the world still remain. And it's even more strongly in this area where towards giving, 1% of all missionary giving goes to those places that are unreached and engaged, and 99% go to the other areas. Again, I'm not disparaging the Timothy work. I just think sometimes there's an imbalance in how we talk about missions and where we look at things. Faith comes through hearing, hearing comes through the Word of God. And, and when we share Christ in some of these places, the gospel, the idea that God himself would come to earth and live among us and give his life so that we have life, is such a foreign concept that for any other culture, that unless you're there learning and living and walking among people, it's so hard to communicate that. And it's so hard to be done unless you speak clearly the Word of God and the heart language of the people. So that same driving passion that Paul had began to plant in our hearts almost 30 years ago. But one of the things that, that comes with that a little bit is this idea. I remember, I remember thinking as, as we were getting ready to go, and someone asked me, you know, when, when, you know I just asked earlier today about taking a, 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 like a pre-trip out to see about going to the area. And I said, well, I don't know, if, I, if I'd have gone, I might not have wanted to go back, I think. And I think one of those things is because I remember walking into, as we got to the place where we were going to go to, in a place called Buriatia, as we were getting ready to go to Buryatia, I was heading out there, and I remember sitting out there thinking, 
what, what am I doing? Like, you know, it, it was just my wife and myself. Um, we didn't have teammates. We didn't even know if we ever would have teammates. And you're sitting there suddenly thinking, we had talked to churches. We had been in places like this before saying, we're going to go church plant among this people group called the Buryats. And then you get there, and you're looking at this monster, and you're saying, what were we even thinking? And I, I love this quote by Allison. He writes this, no one knows what it is to face a city that has never heard of Christ before with no friends near until they try it. One lesson that comes to me is the absolute importance of utter consecration to Jesus, leaving all with him, life, death, health, comfort, family. May God give us strength. The task of working unreached people groups in closed country and pioneer missionaries is a daunting task, but it's necessary. Hi, I just wanted to share a little bit about what that looks like. What does it really look like for a family or do people who are like you sitting in a room like this and end up waiting to go on a train to Siberia? And um, I, I wonder the same thing in that picture too, by the way. <laughs> what, what am I doing here? Um, but just a little bit about uh, myself. Um, I became a believer at the age of 10. And um, when I was about 12, I began to learn in Sunday school that there were places in the world where people had had no opportunity to hear about Jesus and never could unless someone went. And I thought, well, that is just wrong. Someone should do something about that. And it was really like the Lord spoke to me, like, would you be willing to go? And I just said I would, and I just never changed. I just always knew I was going to do that. And that's why I went to uh, Bible college, and as Greg Sherry went and worked in a church in Sarasota. That's our church praying us off. And, um, but we really didn't know where we wanted to go. And we prayed for a long time about where. We we're willing to go anywhere. Um, and we began to have a heart and look into the Kurds. And so Greg made a trip to Turkey. And while he was on a train uh, with some missionaries going to the far east of Turkey, they were going to be on a train all night long. Uh, the missionary that worked in Turkey said, let's not sleep tonight, but let's just pray all night for an unreached part of the world. And Greg kind of thought, well, it'd be, you know, Turkey or something. And he opened up a map, and he didn't recognize anything. He was like, what is this place? And he said, Siberia. And he, Craig said, does anyone even live there? And he said, well, we don't really know, but we do know that there are no mission agencies sending anyone there. And there's all these lines and circles and question marks. And they really prayed for a part um, of Siberia called Buryatia. So the next morning when he got off the train, he found a payphone and called me in Sarasota saying, what about Siberia? And believe it or not, I had been praying with a good friend and I just kept thinking Mongolia, which was not a normal thought for me. And we ended up right above the Mongolian border, um, working with the Buryat people. So the Lord definitely guided and led us, but we really could not find um, an agency that would send us. We called a lot of agencies, they said, look, we are not, going there. We're not going to send some young couple by themselves there either. So we really weren't sure what to do. And uh, one day we were just driving down the highway and we passed an agency and we said, let's just stop in and just ask. And um, we went and said, we'd like to talk to someone about Siberia. And this lady said, yes, they're waiting for you upstairs. Go right ahead. And we said, no, they're not waiting for us because we didn't even know we were coming here. <laughs> and so she said, no, really, they're waiting for you. Just go upstairs. And so this lady said, yes, they're waiting for you at the end of the hall if you want to talk about Siberia. So we knocked on the door, kind of embarrassed, and we said, hi, uh, we just wanted to see if we could talk to someone about Siberia. And this elderly gentleman looked at us and said, the Buryats? And we said, yes. And he said, so you're the couple we've been praying for. And they had been praying for a couple to want to go there. And 
he cried, I cried, we were all crying. And, um, but he had been a missionary in Thailand, had been praying for this part of the world for many years. And actually, uh, little did we know that well, he couldn't get in there. And actually, the, the area wasn't even open to foreigners until like a couple months before we arrived. So before we knew it, we were on a train um, or in Moscow waiting to go on a long train ride to where we were going. But, you know, it was interesting because we had so many unknowns because, I mean, this is before the internet, this is before you can just Google information. I mean, there was just very little information and people would ask us questions like, we really don't know. And um, when we got to uh, Moscow, we got to know some people and some believers there before we went and they were scared. Like, we would never go where you're going. That is just scary and dangerous. <laughs> This is your country. <laughs> you wouldn't go there. And um, as I'm saying goodbye, about to get on this uh, train with our little baby, this lady's like, well, you will not find food for your baby, and you will die there. Goodbye. And so that was really comforting, because I had five days to think about that on the way to Ulan Day. And so um, we crossed across Russia, and we lived right by that big lake, um, Lake Baikal, deepest lake in the world. And we ended up in the city of Milaner Day. And the whole world changed, really, in the sense that it was now Asia. And so the faces changed, the music changed, there were Tibetan prayer cloths, and um, it was very different from where we had been before. And it was a whole new world. I mean, it was the way of shopping, and outside markets all year long, obviously different language, different culture. People weren't exactly the most friendly or helpful. and. I remember thinking, like Greg's like, we're just a drop in the bucket. I mean, what were we thinking, and what, what are we doing here, and how can we actually have a real impact here? And it wasn't even just about adjusting to a whole new place, but it's actually understanding what people are thinking and how they view the world, their worldview. And so the Buryats were Tibetan Buddhists, um, but they also had a mix of shamanism or witchcraft, and then you also had the background of communism. And um, as a side note, that there is the world's largest head of Lenin. It's in the center of our city. Right behind it is the KGB building. And let me tell you that it was so intimidating to me when we first got there. And I remember thinking, how are we supposed to? We wanted to come here and plant a church, a church that would be mature, that would be able to plant their own churches one day. And knowing also the government wasn't exactly handing out visas, we didn't know how we were going to stay there long term. So all these challenges. And I remember thinking that it not only seemed impossible, it really felt impossible. Um, of course, we already serve the God of the impossible. But that is, was just that overwhelming sense of, of my feeling when we got there. But um, as we learned the hard way, because we, our visa wasn't the right visa to live in um, Siberia, we, had, we got kicked out, we had to go to Mongolia and then come back. And Greg was able, he had 30 days to find a way to stay in. and so. Um, he used his chemical engineering background, was able to teach at the Novosibirsk uh, State University. So he allowed us this access, and it was a real job. It gave us an identity in the community that made sense. We also um, realized we need to be light on our feet, like Rick, to say that we knew that that could change at any moment, at any time they could decide not to give us that visa. So we were always thinking of other ways that we could stay there. And that actually... <laughs> Greg's favorite word is tenacity minus resilience, but I think combined, it's a, the combination of being able to say, I'm going to stay here no matter how hard it is and how long it takes to see this accomplished. And um, it took lots of time to actually just be there and begin to learn language and feel like you knew how to function and get to know people. 
But God had another surprise for us, something that we didn't expect. But we lived in a republic that had, in our city, there was over 70,000 deaf people. And under the Soviet Union, they had been sent there. Now, I had actually never met a deaf person. We had never met a deaf person before, but they were the friendliest people <laughs> we would meet on the street. They just really wanted to get to know us, and no one else was that friendly, so we really got to know them. And they were just, in this, a particular guy named Kostya was just so insistent that we were gonna learn sign language. And we thought, well, we were really here to learn Russian, but or, that's fine. So we began to learn sign language. And he was an interesting character, character because unbeknownst to us, he was actually part of the deaf mafia and was a hitman. But he was very consistent with coming over every morning, bright and early, to teach us sign language. And he'd say, I'll stop by tonight and teach you some more. And so as we began to share like what we were doing, like what, about the, our worldview and about teaching the Bible, he invited a bunch of people to our apartment. And it was just kind of amazing. And so um, they, were, they were kind of, they seemed a little nervous, which was normal, I mean, they didn't know us, but they started to come and after months of teaching, um, Kostya finally stood up and said, okay, I want you to know I am now a believer in Christ and so you guys don't need to come anymore. And what we didn't know, he was threatening them, you will come to this meeting. And everyone was so afraid of him because he was this mafia guy, they just came. But actually, the Lord had worked in their hearts. They said, no, we really want to come and we want to keep listening. And that is how the Deaf Church was born in our small apartment. And soon we would have people coming to our apartment saying, are you the Americans that know sign? Could you teach us the Bible? And it was just one of those amazing miracles that we could never act, act, or expected or asked for. But, um, but what we realized as we had this, this church that was small and growing, the deaf were just the, really one of the poorest in our communities and they had no way to really um, provide for themselves. And so what um, Greg did is he started a hot dog kiosk, hot dog stand that actually grew in the markets and they actually franchised and had, I think, 36 kiosks that employed hundreds of people. And um, it was just amazing to see how the Lord provided for them that they had the dignity to work and provide for themselves, but also support their church. So that was a really amazing story. You'll hear a little bit more about them later. But that, that began our, our life as we got to know students and, and professors and just our neighbors and people in the community. And what I think, I don't think I realized as we were living there that it was just our whole lives was a testimony to Christ. They had never seen a Christian marriage. They had never seen Christian family. They had never seen how we interact with people or handle challenges or difficulties. And everything was new as we were just trying to live out our lives. And as we began to meet with people and invite them over to talk about the word, but talk about worldview and um, studying the word, um, it was just very step-by-step step because we knew our end goal was to see mature believers. And how do you get to that point? It was basically our whole lives was an open door. And it wasn't easy and it was not without challenges. It's all smiles here, but the group of men, we started a men's group. Um, there weren't too many who had come to Christ at that point. And so we just said, let's just really pray really for some key men. And um, we started with a couple guys. It was like, come over for dinner. And that's, I think, why they really came at first. Uh, but every Friday night, they came and they, um, they started, and actually, months after months, Greg would listen to who they were, what, it meant to, what, was, what was it to be a Buryat, and their worldview. And finally, they were like, okay, we would like to hear from you, because Greg had earned their trust. And when he started in the beginning with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, 
a fight almost broke out in our living room. I mean, it was definitely a clash of worldviews, but it was spiritual warfare, and it was definitely um, very intense times as people were beginning to understand and hear the gospel. But it was so worth sharing our lives and having people be able to know they can come over at any time. And um, I think one of the most interesting things for me as I've looked back, because um, we did go through hard things. We, it would have been so easy to just say, you know, it's too hard to stay here. The government doesn't want here. So we only have three-month visas all the time. You have to leave the country. Just the challenges of living far from family or health things. And there was a time where we almost thought we had to leave because of a difficult pregnancy, and we thought we were going to lose our son, and we didn't know if we could come back. Um, and when everything worked out and my, my health was fine and my son's health was fine, we were in America, and we said, well, we're going to go back to Siberia. And we had well-meaning friends and family saying, why would you go back? You've done enough. Just stay here. God will use you here. And we were having struggles getting new visas. And someone said to me one day, well, is it worth it? I mean, is it worth all this hassle? And what the Lord used that in my life was, well, if one more person would come to know the Lord, then it is worth any inconvenience or hassle or waiting for a visa because it would be worth it. And I just think it's amazing when I think of this girl, Maya, in the red. If we had not gone back, we would not have met Maya, who uh, was one of our first believers in the Hearing Church. And she would never introduce us to Ayuna, who's standing next to me, who you're going to hear from later tonight. So it was definitely worth it. It is always worth it to serve the Lord, even when it's hard and difficult and inconvenient, and it's very challenging. Um, but our dream, as we would share with our believers, our dream was to see one day a Buryat pastor or a deaf pastor leading these churches, and that we can go and just listen to them and attend. And it wasn't our job to stay there and lead. And so as we had believers and we discipled them and we were teaching them how to disciple others to the point where we would just hear about the discipleship groups and we weren't even leading them and seeing people baptized and raised up to be leaders um, among the deaf and the hearing, um, you know, one day Greg was saying, well, you know, I mean, I came across the world, I mean, to the ends of the earth. And they said, well, this isn't the, end of the ends of the earth. This is Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. And it actually, we need to be going and we need to be sending. And it was just amazing to see that, yeah, they have that role. That is their job. And it is so special to be able to be a part of seeing these churches started and to seeing the believers and really becoming truly family in Christ and that unity that we can share and the Lord did bless. The Lord did bless, and we saw the churches grow. We like to say that we had a front row seat of what God wanted to do, because it did seem and feel impossible, but he did far more than we can ask, dream, or imagine. And I would not change anything, but I would say that this is the most impactful thing, is just to see that the bodies, even the deaf and the hearing, and the deaf actually don't like to be called the deaf church anymore, because there's a lot of hearing that go there. Some of their relatives are hearing, or people in the community, they're just one body, and it's amazing to see what the Lord can do. And the story continues. The Lord still is writing the Buryat story and the deaf story in this area because now they are going and they are sending. So they have sent um, some deaf to the Far East to plant churches. Um, they've gone to other countries like China, to different people groups in Siberia, the Evenk, to Mongolia, up to the Arctic Circle, um, to different people groups in uh, Russia called the Altai, and actually, one of our believers is currently in Indonesia, and she wants to be a Bible translator. 
I could never have thought that that would ever happen. The deaf started a Bible school, Bible college in Mongolia, that small group of people in our living room who didn't even know how to feed themselves, really. It's amazing what God can do when we trust him. I like this picture. Um, oh, that's a, okay, with the band um, there. So that is a Christian concert in the center of our city. And um, right behind them is that large head of Lenin. And I just can, if I could go back years ago and say, someone will tell me that one day there's gonna be a Christian concert there. So there's no way that would ever happen. And so it's so amazing to me to see what the Lord could do and the power of the gospel, um, no matter where it is. Um, so also, I just wanna say that it is so special to be a part of the body in different cultures and different languages and different places, because we are truly one in Christ. And I had nothing in common with so many of these people. My deaf friend to the, to the right of me in that picture, um, she is deaf. We have nothing in common from our childhoods whatsoever. We cannot say, oh, I remember when we did that too. I mean, there was just nothing, but she was one of my very first friends and she was so patient with me when I was learning sign language. And just that bond in Christ, it was something I, I would never forget and I would never change for the world. And my other friend, Natasha, on the other side of me, and there with her husband, Genia, um, we met them before they were believers, and now they're, he's the pastor of uh, the Deaf Church, um, and they're hearing. And they used to make fun of us because we were learning sign language, like, oh, we would never do that. And now they're in incredible interpreters, and uh, they teach all over the place. But one of the funnest things we've gotten to do over the years is to go back and visit. I mean, go back and visit our church and our friends, and. One night, uh, we were with Jenny and Natasha, and we were just reminiscing about when we first met in our lives, and they would laugh when we were brand new, we didn't know anything, and just things like that. But um, Natasha said something to me that I will never forget. She said, sometimes I lay awake at night, and I wonder what my life would have been like if you'd never come. And I just thought, what if I had just said, I am just homesick, or this is too hard, or too cold, or, or whatever. And I'm so thankful for the Lord's grace and kindness to me in my life for saying it is worth it. And, you know, we sit and we talk about, you know, statistics and numbers and dots on a map, but the unreached are just people, like people in these pictures and people like us, and uh, they just haven't heard the gospel yet. And how will they hear unless someone goes? <clears throat> kind of want to walk through a little bit about, like, what is this task then? As Julianne kind of laid out, like, what it was for us as far as how it went was this idea of what is pioneer church planting, what does pioneer church planting look like, kind of walking through some of the components of this thing. And going back to that original statement that I made and she referred to as well was the drop in the bucket perspective of what are you going to do. This isn't, a, this isn't a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle we're facing. This is not about flesh and blood things we're dealing with. This is actually a spiritual engagement that we're involved in. And I think the, the reality and the realization that if you're going to be involved in this task of church planting, you have to give it over to the Lord completely. This isn't something you can do naturally, so it's not going to come that way. And I mean, we just watch right now what's going on in the world right now, and you, and you can clearly, clearly see that these are things that are happening on this level, but it doesn't change this reality that people need Jesus. People need to know who he is. And that comes from this idea, then the second part of this thing is this idea of then beginning to get first a deep love for the Lord. People have often said to me at times, it's like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I could do that. I'm not sure if I really love that type of people or people from that country. I don't know if I feel a love for them. It's like, what does it even mean? You know, it's, the whole focus is first on my, what is my relationship with the Lord first? I have to fall more in love with the Lord, and it's, that is who gives me my love. When I fall more in love with the Lord, then I'm, I'm willing to look past issues. I'm willing to look past things because God is the focus in this thing. So put down this, a deep love for the Lord first and then for his word, getting to know who he is, getting to understand, and then the lost. 
and engaging the lost and saying that I, I'm willing to do these things for the sake of the people that God has given me who are right in front of me. Not those that are way out there, but for the people that are right in front of me. And then a continued prayer as well. We pray oftentimes for just the ability to proclaim the gospel. I, where we work, and as um, Mark shared a little bit, Global Service International focuses specifically on closed countries and, and places where the gospel isn't. And so what that means is we have to find strategic ways to get into countries where, quite frankly, they do not want you proclaiming the gospel. And yet, one of our values, one of the things we hold strongly to is we don't do this just to get in there and help people. We, get, we go in there because we believe God has called us in to see the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed among the nations. So how do you do that? You have to find ways to get in, to stay in, to be there. And that's the challenging part. But once you're in there, finding and, and being willing to proclaim the gospel. And I can tell you, the first time you share in certain contexts, you just don't know who's in the room and you're not sure how far this is gonna go in a conversation you're gonna have and what's gonna happen after that takes place. And then prayer for encouragement and perseverance. As Julianne said, our, our favorite words are resilience and, and tenacity. But there's this idea of being resilient in these areas, being resilient with the issues that hit you, but then also this idea of being tenacious. Like, scratching and clawing. There's everything inside of you. I always, say within, I always tell this to church planters when getting up to go there. When you're in a really hard situation, there's everything inside of you screaming, get out. And you have to sit there and say, I have to rely on the Lord to say, no, 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 that's not real. That's not anything I have to deal with. I have to deal with reality. I need to stay and fight through these things. So we always look at it this way, starting with the end first, kind of walking through, uh, looking for, I can't the end of my, hick of the end one more time. Yep. Go back. I get it, yep. So uh, you start with the end in mind, kind of like saying, okay, what am I trying to do? And I, I'll, I'll just say that as, even as a church, as we walk with churches, and we as an organization, we believe strongly in partnering with a local church, Global Serve does. But we, we always do that. So as a family's getting ready to go out with us, we always want to talk about first, what is the task this church is trying to send someone to do? Because again, I say this before, I said this before, in missions, everything is missions. And so many different things are missions. And so when you're sending somebody to a field, it's really good to have clarity on what is the task we want to accomplish. So what are we trying to see happen? And for us, it's church planting. It's seeing a church established in that community. It's seeing that church reaching maturity. It's seeing that church actually beginning to take on the role of the Great Commission themselves and saying, okay, now what do we do? So talking about that first, this is what we want to accomplish first. We all agree on that as we walk through those things. With a church planter, this is key to do. Agree on what the task is. Because I'll just say this to you guys, and I mean, I'm guilty of this before uh, as well. I wanted to change the, the markers. There's like the, the goalpost. I wanted to pull the goalpost closer. As you sit out there, you realize, man, this task that we said was planting churches in this area, it's just not going to happen. They're, they're not going to give me visas to stay here long enough. So I'm going to just change the goal and just lead people to the Lord and just let God, we'll just translate some stuff and see if some, And we had to continue to say to ourselves, that's not what we came here to do. That's not what we came here to do. We believe God wants us here. It's just isn't obvious how we'll stay here. So it's a matter of just fighting and finding ways to get those visas to stay longer. And then you get into this process, what we call this idea of church planting steps. It's language and culture first. Uh, you have to understand, to access community and have deep relationships so that you can clearly communicate the gospel, you have to know the community, you have to be able to speak the language. Um, Pre-evangelism, which is this aspect of building relationships in the community. I mean, I know all of you guys know people uh, around here and as you guys would start a Bible study here in your community, but, but when you walk into a community that you know nobody in, you're trying to find people that will just talk to you and just engage you, and building those relationships and building a network out and continuing to build that network out, which means people coming into your houses all the time, being, growing deeper in relationships and realizing, I think back to, I cannot tell you how many, I honestly can't tell you how many people were in my home, were in our home, before we saw the first person come to faith in Christ. 
but we're talking lots of people. Just waves and waves of events that we would do where people would come and go, come and go, and you'd just be like, I have, we have to go deeper, we have to get deeper, we have to know the culture better, and we have to get to understand them better. So understanding their belief systems, noticing gaps that as, as they're talking, you're noticing gaps in their worldviews, you're understanding the barriers they're having to the gospel, where their issues would be to a, a proclamation of Christ, where they would run into problems in those areas. And then begin to think, how would I engage that? How would I talk to somebody about the Lord? We would write those things down. We would talk with each other but after meetings and times together and write things down and say, what did we learn from that conversation? What are, what are, they, what are they thinking about? What's their, what's their issues? And then in many of our areas where we work, it's translation of materials. Like we walk into places where they, they, there is no Bible in the language. And so it has, you have to translate the Bible into that language, which means something really, really challenging in some places is they have no orthography. You have to make an orthography. You have to put an alphabet together. You have to create the alphabet, and then you have to write out the Bible and take time to write a, a legitimate Bible translation. And I'll just say one thing. There are a lot of Bibles that have been translated that nobody can read, and they're just sitting on a shelf, and they're never being used. Unless it's a readable translation, unless it's a usable translation, unless people can read it, it won't be of any benefit. But unless you have a Bible, my experience as I've traveled around the world, and I've, I'll just say this for China, in China, I traveled all over the place, and we saw three areas where there were still existing churches and places when I first went there. And yet I'd heard there's all kinds of Christian activity. I'd read all these biographies of missionaries having been there, but there were only three standing churches after the 70 years or 50 years of communism that had taken place. And you wondered why that was. And the consistent thing I saw was where there was an existing Bible, there was a, still a church. Where there was no Bible still existing, there was no church. And that's, a, that's pretty simplistic, and maybe that's just me, but it was a pretty accurate statement for what I saw where we were working. And so we value the Word of God being written and readable meaning the people need to be able to read it and understand it so that they can teach and explain God's Word in their own heart language. Teaching literacy and preparing materials to teach and then communicating God's message so that these guys can pass it on to other people in their society. This is a huge part of what we believe in. And that takes time. And so I'll, I'll go into another aspect of this a little later, but then the goal in communicating the gospel is not actually changing their culture or changing the government, but it's transforming hearts and lives. And so we walk into these places, and as we share the Word of God, we're not trying to see them acquiesce to what we believe is our philosophy or our morality, but who Jesus Christ is and who God is and getting a better and more real understanding of this. And we found one of the best ways to walk people through this is through narrative teaching. Beginning in Genesis, walking through from creation all the way to the fall of man, all the way to his, our redemption through Jesus Christ, and then finally the restoration the fullness of time. And they begin to see God's story as their story, not a foreign God. Not a foreign God story. Not a story about a foreign God, but it begins to be that God that they're reading about, that God they're hearing about is their God. They begin to realize that this story is our story. This is our story. This history that I'm hearing about is not about this other people over here, but they begin to see how they connect to that story. So teaching to recognize, understand, so they can begin to recognize false worldviews. And they begin to identify their, their story as God's story. And then discipleship. You know, evangelism isn't the goal and mission in the Great Commissions. It's the discipling of all the nations, right? So bringing these believers into maturity through discipleship and to reproduction and multiplication. So just kind of walking with people through this journey and helping them understand who God is and then walking along with people. And discipleship, we, we, we always talk, you know, of course you guys know this, I know you know this, but it's like it's not what you do at Starbucks, you know, on, for 10 to 12 or whatever it is in the morning, but it's actually what you're doing during the week with people. It's how you're living your life and how you're engaging with other people. So bringing people into your life and having them a part of your life. And then the church planting process continues on, right? Because once you have disciples, then you've got to gather these guys together. How do you gather people together? And one of the things that I'll just say this is if you've never, if you've seen a church before, 
then you all have a, like a pre- preconceived idea of what a church should look like. If you've never seen a church before, you have no idea what a church should look like. So where would you go to figure out where a good place to look at it would be? Well, when we started the book of Acts, walking through the book of Acts, as the church, as these new believers were gathered together, reading through the book of Acts, they began to, to see, man, this is, exactly, this is exactly what we need to do as a body. We need to gather together. So it's this idea of f- growing together in a corporate identity as a body. And this is a cross-section of the community. It's not just little kids. It's not just adults. It's, it's kids. It's families. It's children. It's the elderly. Church planting is evangelism that results in churches. Evangelism that results in churches that become and grow into maturity. And the biggest challenge is, again, equipping leadership. And we believe strongly this idea is from the very beginning, you're beginning to prepare the leaders, the future leaders of this church, the future, the future people in this church, the men and women of this church, as they grow in this, in this understanding that there will be leaders that won't be from the West. There will be leaders coming into the body that will be taking over this church, and they will begin to grow into this role of leadership as they grow into it, as you walk alongside these men and women, teaching, describing, and living life among them for the eventual transition to leading. And then we see mature church taking place. Leadership increasingly takes the roles of, of the pastors and elders that are from the community there, and the, the workers, the missionaries, begin to step back in their role. And then finally, the departure, leaving as a missionary. Once the churches are established and they're equipped and they're engaged, the, send, the, 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 the missionary leaves, and the church now is, takes on the role as receivers, from, from receivers of foreigners to now being senders into the mission world. It's a complete picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is like. Now, I, I want to say this because I know you hear all kinds of stories. I'll say, I don't know how long you think that takes, um, but we usually tell people we plan on 20 years of your life. And I, I, can, I just say this too. When you're talking with people nowadays and they say, man, I don't know about these 20 and 30-year-olds that I know if they'd give 20 years of their life up you know, for something. What we're finding is if they know the task, they're willing to commit because they understand what the task is. If you don't know what the task is, if you don't know what the goal is, and you don't know the steps to get there, it makes no sense to say give 20 years of your life. To do what? But when you understand, I have to learn, this right here describes a a 13, it's very optimistic. We do that so people don't freak out. But but it's it's an optimistic perspective of saying 13 years, one to three years to learn the first language. That's what this first little column is. To learn the first, we call it E2. Learn the first language. And you've learned the first language and you've established your business and you've established your access into the community that you're going to get into. So that's, your, that's, your, that's in the national area. Now you're going to the tribal area, wherever that is, and you're going to get into those places. And then you have to run that business, make that business successful, build relationships, and then you start all over with another language. And then you're to learn that language. And then once you get that language done, that's when you go through this idea of translation, orthography, translation, preparation of materials, beginning to learn how to teach those materials, beginning to walk with people through back checks and back translations and walking through that process. It takes about six to eight years to get to that point. And that's a pretty successful and speedy work. One of the challenges I always had was getting these from mission, from mission churches. They would send me these forms to fill out. You know, how many guys have you baptized? You're like, like, yeah, I'm on my kids three times this week, but you really can't do that, you know, so you're like, um, you know, zero, you know, and you just felt like the biggest loser, you know, putting zeros on those papers because for, for, for too long it felt like I had, we had, we were, the, we were the zero missionaries. We were those guys that were out there learning language, learning culture, spending time building relationships, and we were the zeros. And, and then you're sitting there thinking, then you go to places, a conference, and people would be the thousands, you know. And you'd be like, oh, man, I don't want to speak. You speak, I don't want to speak. You know, and you, know, you just sit out there. But I'll just say this. To do this task, to leave a church, a, a church established that's mature, that's able to be equipped to challenge and to resource places, it takes time. It takes 
It takes time. It's hard work, but it's the most amazing work you can ever do to see a body of Christ, to see a body of believers and a people group that I've never heard before. One of the things I, I find for myself and just as we've walked through some things is, is in missions, especially in missions conferences and mission events, and especially like as Todd was doing a couple weeks ago, is we were walking, about this, walking through this picture of like the Great Commission and the unreached, unengaged, and the, the 3,200 unreached people groups that still are in the world today. And um, when, you, when you get to numbers like 3,200 unreached people groups or uh, these people groups in this part of the world have never heard of Christ, or what does it mean to be unreached, unengaged, and where is that at? Um, I, I find that when it gets over 50 people, it gets to be a lot of people to keep track of. Like, you just start losing, like, oh, yeah, that's a lot. And, wow, you know, if there's more than 10 unreached people groups, that's a lot. And so just the numbers get to be something. But what I, I find really interesting and amazing is when you actually put faces to numbers. And one of the things that we've have the privilege of the day is just, is just having somebody from one of those places in the world, unreached places in the world, unreached people groups in the world, to be able to sit here up here with you. So um, I want to introduce you to Ayuna. And uh, Ayuna and I have known each other for a very long time. 20-something mm -hmm. <laughs> years. 20-something years. And, uh, and so I've, I've asked Ayuna to come up and share a little bit. Um, you saw Ayuna in some of those pictures in, in Buryatia when we were working. Um, when she looks exactly the same, I looked a little younger then, but she looks exactly the same. Um, but we were, but just, just gotten to know each other over a long time. And I thought it'd be really important and, and helpful for you guys as a church to kind of get a picture from another side of the world. Like, what is it like to be one that was unreached and a people group unreached? And so, Aina, when you read Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and you see the, the word ethne in there, and they talk about that. What does that mean to you personally? And, like, and who are the Buryats? And what, what were the Buryats like prior to, in the history? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the word ethne, it means nations or people groups. And um, I am from a people group. It, and these verses, basically, they talk about me and my people group as well, um, as many, many others. Uh, so, Buryats is an indigenous group of Siberia. We always lived uh, around Lake Baikal, on the shores of Lake Baikal, and it was a nomadic people group to start with. So, they moved from place to place and um, never settled kind of in one location, but that the area where they moved around, it was Siberia. We're very close in culture and language with Mongolian people, but we're still different. And um, from the get-go, just because of the lifestyle that Buryats had, um, the belief system was animistic. So basically, uh, there, there is a lot of dependency on the nature, on the environment. So they worship the spirits. Um, every um, tree, mountain, river has a spirit, basically. And you need to, in, in order to live in harmony, you need to appease the spirit. And um, that was the original belief system. And then in 1700s, um, Tibetan monks came through Mongolia to our area and introduced Buryats to the uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And they accepted that belief system. Um, and um, around this time, I think, the Russians, ethnically Russian people, started exploring more of Siberia and more Russians started moving into the area and um, actually Western tribes who were on the Western um, 
shores of Lake Baikal, they started accepting the um, way of living, which is like farming the land, um, having cattle, and, um, and settle down more. Uh, but also, the Russians brought the belief system, which was Russian Orthodox Christianity. And uh, what they started doing is forcefully baptizing Buryats, not asking if they wanted to or not. And Buryats, uh, the Western tribes, they tried to um, survive during that time. So they accepted that. They were baptized, but they still held onto their old beliefs, shamanism. And that, you can imagine that syncretism happened. And, um, and actually, Eastern Buryats, Eastern tribes also uh, accepted Tibetan Buddhism, but they also, um, on top of the belief system that existed on, on top of shamanism. So you can also understand that syncretism happened as well. So I come from both sides, from Eastern and, and Western Buryats. So I have a mixture kind of, of uh, culture. And um, I know it might be very complicated. <laughs> Sounds very complicated. Uh, but when, that's, yeah. When you grew up, uh, and I go back a little bit because the, the Buryats, that, that was until uh, an event took place in, in around 1917 mm -hmm. uh, that took place in your country, which changed everything yes. in your country. How did that impact? And tell me about that, and also how did that impact you growing up? Like, what did that mean for you as you grew up uh, in a communist world? So, that time, 1917, the Great Revolution happened in Russia. That means that, um, you remember from history, that communism came to, um, communists came to power. And with that, the promotion of atheism started in the country. So the prosecution um, started and um, all the Russian priests from Russian Orthodox um, temples and Christianity as a whole, uh, they were prosecuted and sent into labor camps as well as uh, Buddhist monks in Buryatia also were under the prosecution. All the temples were burned down, all the shrines and worship places. So um, the communist regime came fully uh, to Russia. And I was born actually at the peak of the communist, communist regime. And um, my parents actually really believed that they were building the best society, they were building the uh, bright future for the kids, for us, for my brother and me. And, um, and I remember that in um, elementary school we had special classes, actually, that it's not just academics, but we had um, uh, classes that we were taught what communism is all about, uh, what, what does it mean to be a communist, and um, we were the future of the Communist Party. And uh, during those lessons I remember that our teachers even uh, told us that we as communists, we do not believe in God. There is no God. And uh, I remember seeing these posters of uh, beautiful pictures of planet Earth and solar system and um, stars and constellations. And they would say, like, these pictures were taken by our spa spacemen that went to space first. And um, can you see God in these pictures? We're like, no. <laughs> so if we do not see something, if we cannot touch something, it doesn't exist. So, but at home, when I uh, went home uh, from school, I saw my grandpa actually um, doing uh, Buddhist uh, rituals. He had a string of uh, Buddhist beads 
that he moved one by one, and by moving it, he also was uh, saying one prayer on my badmehu. Um, and he had to do that, what, like 30 beads and 10 times, like 10 circles of that, so 300 times a day he had to say that one prayer. And when he wasn't busy with anything else, that's what he would do. I would observe him doing that, sitting on his chair and doing this praying beads. On the weekends, he uh, burned um, Buddhist uh, um, incense in front of a small Buddha statue that we had on our bookshelf in our living room. And um, as long as I remember myself, I remember that Buddha statue standing on the bookshelf there at home. Um, so that was my um, kind of experience at home. And then when I went to visit my maternal grandma, she was from the Western tribes of Buryats, and um, she performed her shamanistic rituals. And when I asked what that means, uh, why, uh, why she did that, why she burned some herbs and um, stuff like that, and she explained to me that we're asking our ancestors who are deceased uh, already uh, to protect our family, to help our family. Um, yeah, mostly for protection. So. You can imagine that uh, growing up and hearing one thing at school, um, observing another thing at home, I was really confused what was really true. Tell me about, like, so as you grew up, did you, you, you started to go to different things and you went to, did you ever do any rituals? As, as communism began to fall apart, things began to happen, um, you were still fairly young. Yes, I was 12 years old when the um, uh, Soviet Union collapsed. And I remember that my dad, my, my grandpa already uh, died by that time, and my dad announced to us, like, since uh, Soviet Union fell, now we have freedom of religion, and we're gonna follow the path of Buddhism, because this is the religion of our ancestors. This is the, uh, what our grandpa believed, and this is our identity. This is where we're gonna go worship. And my first time at the Buddhist temple was, actually, we didn't, we didn't go right away into the temple. We had to go uh, clockwise um, in the courtyard around the temple. And that was unusual for me <laughs> for the first time. Uh, but I was excited because I wanted to learn what it is that was hidden for us for 70 years and now all of a sudden was allowed to do. And um, so my dad said that first we need to push this praying drums as we walk uh, around the courtyard. And on each drum, there were like hieroglyphics written on them. And of course, I couldn't read them. And when I started asking my dad, like, what does that mean? What, why do we need to push these praying drums? Uh, he explained to me that these hieroglyphics are written in old Tibetan language. Uh, it's very ancient in the holy language for Buddhists. We cannot read it, but we need to pray. And in each drum, there is a book of prayers written in old Tibetan language. Uh, since we cannot read it, we can push the drum and the drum spins around. And that's as if like we're reading these prayers and these prayers go up to heaven. And I was like, okay, I was satisfied with this answer, but uh, in my heart, I was thinking like, that would be so cool to get that, bio, <laughs> that, that get that, prayer book and see and read the prayers, what, what, were, what are the prayers all about. And then we went into the temple that was the biggest building in the center of uh, this court. And I think, yeah, you see in the pictures. Okay. So um, 
it was the most beautiful place that I've ever seen by that time. Uh, everything was colorful and golden, and um, there was a lot of like uh, noises going on, and I couldn't understand. It's like a music, but it's, it, did, it didn't like sound like a melody because the Buddhist monks were playing the trumpets, uh, banning the uh, drums and cymbals. It was really like overwhelming, but it was so interesting for me to learn everything uh, what was going there. And then we, um, on the opposite wall from the entrance door, there was, um, we started approaching that and my mom said, put your hands like, like, like this together and pray. And I was like, how do I do that? And she told me, just like uh, send happy thoughts, like well-being for our family, health and prosperity, whatever good you can think about um, our family. I was like, okay. And as we approached that wall, I saw this like hundreds of Buddha statues. At home, we had just one. And I kind of knew like, okay, this is who my grandpa worships. And we're supposed to worship him, that. Here, I was confused, like who, who are they and who do I pray to? And of course, I singled out the, in the center one, the biggest one, I was like, okay, this is, this is one, this is the one. And then as we were passing by all of them and got to the other end of the room, my dad whispered to me, do not turn your back towards them. Uh, it's a no, no. So we had to back out, never turning our backs towards the statues. We got out of the temple and I was like, okay, so I have a question about this. What about that? And I started asking uh, my dad and my dad said, you know, uh, it's all new to me as well. I'm gonna tell you what I know, but most of it we do just because we were told to do this. And he couldn't explain me everything, but um, again, I was like, I didn't receive the answers to my questions. And I was like, okay, but this is who we are. We are Brits, and this is our religion. This is what we need to do and follow that. As, as years went by, you went off to college? Yes. Um, and you began studying even, even a little bit in college. And then um, I was teaching at a university, not your university, but one that was related to your university. Um, and I was teaching a class, and I met a guy named Bother. Mm -hmm. And uh, he be, was one of my students, and I invited him. We, we had a team of people coming out that summer to work with deaf kids mm -hmm. at a camp. And I invited him to help find some people to translate for some American college kids. And so how did, how, tell me about that, about how, how we first met. So, um, yeah, like we were approached by Butter and um, because we were at the Department of Foreign Languages, he was like, hey, do you want to practice your English? We're like, of course. <laughs> so we have a professor, chemistry professor, he's an, an American, and he would like to meet uh, some uh, students uh, because he has a team to come and uh, he needs help. So we went and that was the first time ever to meet foreigners for me. <laughs> and um, we went to Greg's and Julianne's apartment. And you didn't like me. <laughs> I didn't like Greg. <laughs> I liked Julianne. <laughs> um, well, um, he was a foreigner and a professor at our university. So of course, like it was intimidating 
But as we got to know each other, as we continued this fellowship and relationship, we, we just got to know the students, five students that came from um, the States, and we had a blast. Uh, we had a good time. And then after that, uh, my best friend, Maya, who you saw in the pictures, and she actually went to the camp um, to continue helping with the translation. And I, would, I had a hiking trip schedule, so I couldn't go. And um, after that, uh, we reunite, got reunited with her at the end of the summer, and uh, she told me, like, I need to share with you something. I became a Christian. And for me, it was like, okay, <laughs> like, that's weird because you bred. Uh, it's not your religion, but of course I didn't say that. I didn't want to ruin the friendship. And, and as a Buddhist, you just, um, you keep this harmony between your friends, be in, in the family, you try to do that. And um, I didn't want to let this question come up and become a barrier in our friendship. So, and I thought also, like, actually, like, it's better than to be an atheist, like to follow Christianity if it's good for her. Like, and this is what I said, good for you. Like, that's great. And that was the end. But then uh, in, couple, in a couple of weeks, I think she um, told me that, well, actually there's gonna be Bible study that I would like to attend. Would you like to come with me? And she said, it's gonna be at Greg's and Julianne's um, place. And um, I really liked Greg and Julian, <laughs> by that time, um, they were nice, and I wanted to continue friendship with them. Um, of course, I wanted to improve my English, my speaking English ability. I was like, yeah, I can practice my English, and um, I didn't want to disappoint my um, friend, and I wanted to support her, and it didn't sound threatening. If somebody came, uh, approached me on the street, like Greg himself, for example, and invited me to the Bible study, I would be like, no way, <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, but that was my friend, and also I knew that some other friends um, are going to attend this Bible study. And the Bible part, I was like, yeah, just for my general education, might as well, like, we will, like it's going to be good. good. And it was, we, we, you came into the group, and what happened? Uh, yeah, um, so the first Bible study, I remember that uh, you said that we're going to meet every week, and then you started explaining why is it really worth opening the Bible and reading it and knowing what it says? And I've never had, heard this before. I was like, wow, this is really amazing and uh, captivating for me, uh, how the Bible was written and um, all the facts about the Bible. And uh, actually that it is a holy book because God himself inspired people to write this book. So it wasn't like actually people writing it, but it was inspired by God, words written down. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then you uh, handed out Bibles, and each of one of us at the, um, at the table got these uh, Bibles, and uh, that was the first time that I held a physical Bible in my hands. And, um, and you, are, like, you asked somebody to... Read, to open the, the, let's open the Iowa Bibles and somebody ca can read, um, find the first book, Genesis, um, and you explain like how it is, like chapters and verses, and then like chapter one, verse one. And, um, and when I opened the Bible, 
I was shocked because it, it wasn't my heart language. Uh, I expected it to be like this holy old Tibetan language or old Russian language or English language. I didn't expect that it would be in my heart language. And I was like, oh my word, this is amazing. I can read it and I can understand the words. I can, I can really comprehend what it says. And then you ask somebody to read uh, the first verse and um, they read, in the beginning, God. And <laughs> all of a sudden you ask them, stop here and let's talk about that. And I was like, that's not the end of the verse <laughs> uh, to myself. And, um, but to my amazement, it was like we spent maybe 10, 15 minutes to talk about it, like what it means in the beginning and uh, who is God. And that was another thing that hit me and shocked me because um, the Bible from the very beginning started talking about God, the God that I couldn't find in Buddhism and I couldn't see in shamanism. Um, and then when we started uh, reading it chronologically, every Friday, uh, getting together and going through like story after story, and the whole story just like um, started unfolding that how everything started and how God is loving and how he thought of uh, creating something amazing like that and um, that he made everything perfect because he was perfect. And all of a sudden, I started realizing that my questions that I had from my very, like, from my childhood, I started receiving answers for the first time in my life. And um, then we went to uh, the story of Paul, of Adam and Eve, and that how everything, why everything is wrong now, like, in the world, why the world is broken, and um, that the descendants of Adam and Eve, that means the whole humanity, it's us, people, um, we inherited the sin from them. And then uh, God, in his loving character, he was just, he um, couldn't uh, stand them, and he, they had to leave uh, the Garden of Eden, but he also provided a way for them, and he promised them that something is going to happen in the future that will mend this relationship. And and then the, um, all the other stories like pointed at his character that um, we didn't deserve, people didn't deserve his love, but he continued to reach out, he continued to initiate this relationship. And I had never heard this before, that God would be so close to people and wanting this relationship. Uh, the gods that I heard about, and um, as in Buddhism and shamanism, it's just like, a way of living, it's philosophy more, there is no God. Or even, even there are gods, they're very distant and they do not want to do anything with the sinful people and you just have to earn this merit and um, make your way yourself. Um, and that was the opposite and that's what attracted me more and more in the Bible as we continued reading it. What was one of, what were one of the stories that hit you most as, as you were going along? What kind of what story kind of impacted you? Yeah, it was the story of Flood, um, though it, it seemed for me just like so impossible and so like a fairy tale, but all the, uh, the facts about it, how God um, saw the world and he was sorry to, crea to create it, and I was like, yeah, like, that's, um, I totally understand that the sin that was on, on earth at that time, and, um, but he, 
um, wanted to punish the world, but at the same time, he wanted to provide the escape. And he chose Noah, he saw his righteousness. And um, how he started speaking through him to the people uh, at that time. And for the first time, and I believe that was the Holy Spirit that started working in my heart more and more, that I applied that story to my life. I asked myself, I remember as we were reading through that and discussing it, what, I have, what would I have done at that time if I leave um, and, and seeing and observing Noah building this ark? And I pictured myself vividly that I would be in the crowd, the loudest, um, the most obnoxious one, laughing at Noah, pointing fingers at him, mocking him, and, um, and not just by myself, I would be creating a crowd with me, like, let's go and have fun with, like, making fun of Noah. So I saw that um, my heart issue, that I wouldn't believe anything that Noah was saying to the people about the flood and about the coming of uh, destruction of the world. And uh, when we came to the point when, um, right before the flood came, that God closed the door on the ark, uh, to the ark, and uh, the water started coming out um, underground and from above. And, um, and I think we, you asked us a question like, what do you think would, like if, um, like Noah probably heard the voices of these people and knocking on the door, do you think he was able to open the door? And we're like, well, like that the Bible says it's, uh, it's God who closed the door. And I remember you said, yeah, like Noah wouldn't be able to open the door because it was God doing that. And uh, even if he wanted to say, to help people and save them, it wouldn't be happening because um, the time was done, gone. Like that was, um, God was patient for a hundred years. And, um, and it hit me right then and there that I would be perishing like everybody else in the flood. And the only thing that I did wrong, I would have done wrong, is just not believing the words that Noah was preaching to the people at that time. As you went through a little bit more, as we went through the Bible study more and more, the, the, the group continued on the Bible study. I remember going through, uh, just, just for everybody's reference, Ayuna has a very uh, great perspective of how she was in the group, but when she would come to the group, she was one of the harder persons in the group at first. She, she was not showing uh, her welcoming, receiving of any of this information. She was holding it in very well at that time. <laughs> But as the group, the study went on, you, you were, uh, some major things happened in your life. Can you tell us what was going on? Yes, um, the, the other thing actually, the Bible study that was totally new for me and new experience that uh, Greg uh, prayed at the end of each Bible study, but it was more like general prayer, like for, for the word of God to uh, work and uh, thank you for this fellowship and stuff like that, general prayers. But one time I came uh, to the, to the study and there were already some students uh, sitting there, my friends, and one of them was emotional. And I didn't know what happened, but uh, Greg asked her like, can we pray for that? Can we pray for your grandpa? And I realized something happened with um, my friend's grandpa. But it, what attracted my attention was that Greg asked the permission to pray for her. He wasn't like, let's put her, like our hands on her and just pray. And like, he wasn't pushing that on her. 
And um, that caught my attention. And um, the other thing was that when you started praying, I realized that that was just simple conversation with a God that, like as if he was sitting in the room with us. And it's something for me, like prayer for something specific, it meant trip to the Buddhist temple or a trip to the Orthodox church for Russian people. Praying for the prayer or just buying a candle and putting it in front of an icon. It was a process. You couldn't just like simply just approach God like that. Um, and Greg didn't have any paraphernalia, he just prayed. And it was just a simple conversation and like simple words. And that was impressive for me. I was like, really, you can do like that? <laughs> you can address to God like that? And um, during that time, my parents had a rough time at home. And I knew that I couldn't help them. They couldn't help each other. It's been going for like days. And I remember sitting at my desk, to, trying to concentrate to do my homework, um, and I couldn't. And I was so desperate. And then that what came to my mind, this prayer that Greg prayed. I was like, what if I address this prayer? And what was interesting also for me that uh, at the end of Greg's prayer, he, he said, in Jesus' name. We went through the Bible stories of the Old Testament, so Jesus' part didn't come yet in our stories. And I was like, Jesus, it's like a, a guy that God, that ethnically Russian people pray to and worship at, at the temples. He's on the icons, like this blonde with blue eyes and stuff like that. And um, so when he said in Jesus' name, and I was sitting in my... Uh, bedroom and addressing this need that I knew that there was no help coming and I was just decided to ask with simple words like following the example that I heard from Greg and I said in Jesus name and please pray uh, please help my parents to get peace again be at peace with each other and um, and I remember in my heart I was like if you really God, if you're really listening to me right now. And after I prayed, I just said that uh, sentence, one sentence, I completely like forgot about this, could concentrate on my homework. And a week later, I was sitting again at my desk and uh, my door uh, to my bedroom was open and uh, you could see the living room. And uh, through the crack of my uh, door, I could see my parents peacefully talking with each other. And when I saw that, I remembered, this is exactly what I prayed for. This is the picture was in my head when I prayed about that. And I was just in shock. I was sitting there in my bedroom, I remember, and I, I felt like a presence of somebody who was saying to me, I care for you and I hear you. And from that moment on, I wanted to know what, who is this guy, Jesus? And um, how come he answered the prayer that I never received any 
answers to my prayers at the temples, at um, shamanistic rituals and stuff like that. After, after that took place, the Bible study continued, but you were a very bright student, and you, you learned like 72 languages, and you were, <laughs> one of your languages you were studying was Chinese, Yes. and you were on your way to China to study, mm-hmm. and we were disappointed to see you leaving because we hadn't gotten to Jesus yet. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but we were, we were praying for you, and we talked to you, and you, you just had one more thing to do. Tell us about that. So, um, the, um, everything was packed. Like, I was packed and saying goodbyes to everybody, and um, the only thing was medical certificate. That was the easiest stuff to do. And um, I went to, um, to do that, and my nurse actually said, like, the, your results uh, are not here, so that means that you need to do more tests. <clears throat> And um, when I started asking her, like, what other tests I, I'm supposed to do, she's like, your x-ray showed a little bit of something there, and you need to go do more testing. And I was like, I'm healthy. I'm leaving in two days. There is nothing. That... And she's like, yeah, maybe it's a mistake, so that's why you need to go and do that. And it turned out that I got tuberculosis they found uh, in my lungs. And um, instead of going to China, I had to go to the hospital for six months. And, um, and the hospital that I went to, it was probably built in before World War II and stayed in that condition. It was really terrible, um, I don't know, state of this hospital, but I had to go and be there. And this disease is, as you probably know, it's infectious so I couldn't leave the hospital. Um, But, I don't know, on the weekends, I could go back home, but not during the week. And um, during that time, um, nobody wanted to see me, nobody wanted to interact with me. And then um, one day, my nurse called my name and said, like, there is somebody, like, a visitor for you. I'm like, that's my parents are not usually um, the ones that they do not come usually during that time. So I came downstairs and there was Greg standing there. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing here? Leave, <laughs> it's infectious ward. You're not supposed to be here. And he was like, no, I just want to know how you're doing and what's going on. And uh, from that moment on, they started coming with Julianne to check on me, see how I was, I was doing. And it was just a tremendous encouragement uh, just to see their faces and also know that they care and uh, one day you brought uh, the study guide on the Gospel of Mark and you told me that you do not want me to fall behind uh, because the whole the rest of the group is going into the the Gospels and um, and this is something for me to study on my own and if I have questions that they could answer and we can discuss it together so I started reading this uh, the Gospel of Mark on my own. And when I, it was really exciting for me because that was about Jesus, how he came on earth. And um, the story about the sick lady who had been sick for 12 years, and you probably remember the story, um, that just draw, drew my attention uh, because the commentary to that guide explained the Jewish culture 
and that she was considered unclean. And I'm like, that just matches my situation perfectly because I'm unclean, I have this infectious disease. And as I was reading the story that uh, she decided to come and touch his garments in order to be healed. And uh, Jesus turned around and um, when he asked the crowd who did that, she admitted it was her. And he told her, uh, your faith has made you well, go with peace, my daughter. And that just phrase stuck with me the longest uh, because I was thinking about it and um, trying to answer the questions and uh, kept thinking that it's my situation. I'm like that uh, lady who had been sick and, um, and where am I with Jesus? And how do I approach him? And when I thought about this phrase that I realized that actually she came to him with her physical need of the physical ailment that she had, but he pointed at her spiritual need because he said, your faith has made you well. And as I continued studying, as I continued to think about, like, um, about Jesus and what he was doing and his, um, his way on the cross and his death and his resurrection and just like all of a sudden, these stories that we started from the beginning, from uh, through the Old Testament, started falling into place. And I realized that Jesus actually was God from the very beginning. He was the creator. He was the creator of life. And he was the one who decided to step down from, leave everything, and come to this filthy earth in order to save humanity in order to deal with our problem of sin and at that time it was just this aha moment like this is what he came to do he came to deal with my sin that I couldn't deal with nobody else could uh, help me with that uh, there is no pill to take it I could treat the TB just because I have this medication that doctors give me but my problem of sin was way more important and um, I couldn't deal with that and that's why Jesus came and dealt with that and I remember after realizing that and um, putting my faith in Jesus Christ as my savior I had that tremendous peace in my heart and um, contentment and I knew that I will be okay if whatever happens around me if the whole world crumbles I'm okay because of Jesus Christ I was in the hospital for another four months. My circumstances didn't change, but my heart changed. And from that moment on, I, I follow Jesus and um, love him and uh, want to do what he wants me to do. And every once in a while, you like to point out when you're right in something, you know, like I was right in something. So I told you something one time. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> um, at that time, uh, when we had one of our conversations, Greg told me, like, you know, Ayuna, one time in the future, you're going to look back at this time and you, you would say, you, you will say that it's, it was the best time of my life. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, no way I'm going to say that. But it is, it is the future now that I can look back and say that was the best time of my life because I got to know Jesus Christ is my savior. As, the, as we stayed on, because you didn't get out of the hospital, we began to continue to meet. I, I like to think of the fact that the church sort of began in a, in a TB hospital. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> yes, it, it, it did. 
so my friends, uh, Greg started bringing my friends uh, so that um, that's the only fellowship that I could get. And uh, also they were believers as well and brand new believers. So we started uh, reading the Bible together, praying together. And um, if we had questions, we could ask Greg. And this fellowship continued after I was released um, from the hospital because some other of our friends from that Bible study, they became believers. So our group just grew and we started meeting at the, at the houses, at each other's houses. And, um, and we were going through, this, through the book of Acts because Greg um, and uh, the teammates at that time that you had uh, other missionaries started uh, teaching us how to read the Bible how to understand what it says, how to interpret it, and how to apply it in our daily walk with God. And we were going through the book of Acts, and uh, as we were reading and discussing it, we realized that actually we are like this New Testament church. We are getting together, we're fellowshipping, we're praising God's name, we're worshiping together, we're breaking bread together, <laughs> we uh, share meals together. We are this church. So that's how we realized that um, what God wanted us to be, the church, and what he wanted us to do to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is how our church started, the good news to all the nations. And uh, it still continues strong. Our, our, but as, as, we went on, like, as we began gathering together, the church began to grow, and yes. we had studies that were going on. Can you describe the studies we did in the winters and the summers? Yes, uh, so during, uh, during winters in Siberia, you cannot do much. So we uh, just spent this time studying the word. And during the summer, it was culturally, um, people spend a lot of time outside in the nature. And camps were one of the things that helped us to do like outreach programs that we did different like Bible camps for the kids, for the youth group, or for the youth of our town. Uh, we started going to the uh, neighboring villages and we um, organized student camps as well as family camps. So we wanted to reach um, as many generations as we could. And of course our church was small and young at that time and um, um, Greg and his teammates started inviting or kept inviting the students from America to come and help us with sports and different other activities. And that's how I met Mark actually. We became friends and uh, um, we knew that, um, that we, we, we both were interested in missions, that we knew that this is what God wanted us to do. And after the wedding, a um, couple months after the, our wedding, we moved to um, Altai Republic. It's, Altai is another people group in Siberia. Worked there for three, day, uh, for three years. And then after that, uh, God led us to China and we lived there. So you finally um, got to China? Yes, <laughs> I finally <laughs> got to China. Um, God opened that door for us, and it was really challenging and hard to learn the culture and language that was new for both of us, uh, but we knew that it was important. Can, can I ask you, because mm -hmm. one of the, as I started off with one of the 3,200, you the Berea people were on that list of the 3,000 people groups that were unreached, unengaged people groups in the world, and and as someone who was from the receiving end of all those things, and then you're talking to a church here, what, what would be something you'd want to say to the church at large? 
Um, well, I want to go back to Romans 10, uh, 13, uh, verses 13 and 14. This is how I was challenged by the Word of God. Um, and this is basically, this sums up um, what happened with me, that um, I can call on God's name because I believed in Him. And I believed in Him because I heard about Him. And I heard about Him because Greg and Julianne and other missionaries came to Lanode, to my hometown, and preached the Word of God. And they came and preached because they were sent by the local churches. And that just uh, picture uh, shows me um, two sides of missions. Uh, when I was in Siberia, I met missionaries face to face. We befriended each other. And then um, you um, preached the message of the Bible. You preached the gospel to us. And I saw, saw the work of mission, missionaries firsthand. But the hidden part of missions from me at that time, it was the sending part, that uh, the sending church, uh, they were working with us, but behind them, there were churches in the States that supported them in so many ways, that prayed for them and for us. And that's um, a beautiful picture of how God uses these two sides of missions, missionaries that go and um, churches that support them. So I think it's um, really the, the mission starts at churches that love God, that understand the mission, uh, what God wants them to do, and they send missionaries. So I wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your desire to be one of the sending churches. And um, thank you for those that are willing to go um, because it, it is important and it is a hard work. But we know that the end of this work um, we read it in the book of Revelation that we're going to be standing around the throne of God and worship Him in so many languages, but with one voice. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for having us here. Thank you. Yeah, we want to thank you guys for just being a part of the journey course as well as we've walked through this thing, but also for us just giving us a chance to share a little bit about the two sides of it as well, what church planting, pioneer church planting is, but also I think it's just a, a great picture of understanding the results of that ministry and how it actually looks and how it can change the world, literally change lives around the world. And so thank you for that. And I'll close in prayer and then I'm not sure if you guys go. Father, just thank you for this time. I just thank you for the fact that we do have the privilege of serving a living God. You desire so much to use us, to mold us and to shape us. Father, help us to be willing to be used. I pray too for the, for the the, not the numbers that we see on the list, but, Father, for those that need to know you in a desperate and real way. And I pray that, God, you would continue to lift up men and women in this world, Father, willing to go and do some of the hardest things, Father, learning and engaging and, and moving and exchanging their lives, Father, for a brand new life in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.